We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of The Darkened Hour. I'm Adam Fitzgerald. Today we're going to talk about the Pentagon attack of September 11th, the anomalies that surround this incident, and the stories which are hardly told even by the legacy media. When the file dropped on young Robert Fuller's desk, it was a small dossier which had photographs and names of two men which Fuller had to look into. It was a high-priority case. The FBI's New York office was the epicenter for Islamic fundamentalism since the inception of the I-49 unit in 1996. The elite brand, which catered to specifically in investigating the finances and unique intricate terrorist activities of Osama bin Laden and his organization, Al-Qaeda. Fuller was the only one tasked to look into two Al-Qaeda operatives, Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazmi. It was August 23, 2001, but Fuller was also overwhelmed with other cases to investigate. Thus, the file regarding the two Al-Qaeda operatives were paused for the time being. Fuller was rather new to terrorism squad and already overwhelmed. He had no other help. By the time Fuller opened up the Al-Midar and Al-Hazmi file, it was September 4, 2001. He begins by typing in the names of both men on the query of the Choice Point database, which the FBI had installed recently. The Choice Point is one of several companies maintaining commercial databases on personal information about U.S. citizens. According to Fuller, nothing came up on either of the two men. He explains to an internal review years later that this was in part due to the many different variations of their names. However, in 2003, the 9-11 Commission concluded that the database regarding both Al-Midar and Al-Hazmi were not performed. They also added, quote, searches of readily available databases could have unearthed their California driver's license car registrations, and telephone listings, end quote. September 10th, Nawafa Hazmi and Hani Hanjur are preparing to send an express mail package with an alias, Raouf al-Dog, sending the package to Sharaj, United Arab Emirates. 
They prepared this package at 6.57 a.m. Eastern Time. The address they used, 1565 Washington Boulevard, apartment number 8, Laurel, Maryland. The recipient of the package was the Mustafa al-Hassawi, a known al-Qaeda financier. The package was later intercepted by the FBI, and inside was Khalid al-Midar's debit card and PIN number for his first union bank account, which contained $9,000, for which they would have no use for it. During the afternoon, Hani Hanjour, Khalid al-Midar, and Nawafa Hazmi were checking at the Marriott Residence Inn Hotel, located in Herndon, Virginia, only six miles from Dulles International Airport. Almost as soon as they checked in, a prominent Saudi official and director of the SAR Foundation, which is a Saudi-owned company, a flagship corporation representing charities, think tanks, and business entities, also had checked in. His name was Salah ibn Abdulrahman Hussein. He was also known in downtown Washington, D.C. in the Arab community, known for its high affluent end, of course. Hussein, just the day before, had previously rented at a nearby hotel, also in Herndon, with his wife in tow. Both had entered the United States on August 20th on a tour of Islamic charity organizations in local spots within the East Coast. On the evening of September 10th, Eric Gill, a Pakistan native living inside the United States, was working as the evening ship security supervisor at Dulles International Airport. Gill, an employee of Argabright Security, was stationed at the airport's west checkpoint, which leads to the passengers' area, which were previously screened by security, and where the tarmac was located as well. Stationed along next to Gill was another Argenbright Security employee, Nicholas De Silva. Gill notices five men near the side door, near the west checkpoint, where access is limited to those with security passes. Gill sees three of the men dressed in unkempt United Airlines ramp workers' clothing. The other two did not have passes and were dressed in civilian casual attire. Gill noticed the three men using their security cards to enter the checkpoint and trying to escort the two who did not. Gill rushed over to them and stopped them almost immediately upon entry and asked if they were employees of the airline. He was met with unpleasant admonishment. The men tell Gill to drop dead and say they are important people, but Gill still refuses to let the other two without passes enter, and eventually all five men retreat. At 10 p.m., Gill's shift had ended. The west checkpoint at this juncture was insecure at this time, with only one roving security guard nearby. September 11th, 7.15 a.m. Dulles Airport International. Majid Makid and Khalid Al-Midar check in at the American Airlines ticket counter. At Dulles, the Computer Assisted Passenger Pre-Screening System, or CAPS, is implemented for a database search of high-risk FBI names in its database. This information is used to check against some data store and assign a terrorism risk score 
to that person. Both Makid and Almidar were chosen for a second security screening, which both men had passed. Makid's luggage, a carry-on bag, was also screened and cleared. However, it would not be loaded on the plane in time. Their appearance on a Varint camera security system showed the men going through initial screening through a metal detector. This is the CCTV camera, which can be seen on YouTube even. There would be some contention that the video is undated. However, in the same video is a victim of Flight 77, Marie Ray Sopper, identified by her mother just days later. Nawaf al-Hazmi and Salim al-Hazmi, his brother, would check in together at 7.29 a.m. With its suspected pilot, Hani Hanjour, checking in at 7.35 a.m. Salim al-Hazmi successfully clears the metal detector and is permitted through the checkpoint. Nawaf al-Hazmi sets off alarms for both the first and second metal detectors and is subsequently subjected to a personal screening with a metal detection hand wand before being passed. His shoulder bag is swiped by an explosive trace detector and returned without further inspection. Marie Ray Sopper can be seen holding her cat and she puts it into a red animal cargo holder and she's ahead of Majid Makid and Khalid Al-Midar. And if you look at the security video, which is on YouTube, you can see her walking by holding the red animal cargo holder. She is a victim of Flight 77. Thus, the video is authentic. Inside the pilot's cabin, Captain Charles Burlingame and First Officer David Charles Bois were beginning to begin their long flight to Los Angeles International. They had a short passenger manifest. Fifty-three souls were to be on board for this flight. Flight attendants to service the flight were Jennifer Lewis, Renee May, Michelle Heidenberger, and Kenneth Lewis. The flight, however, was suspended for 10 minutes and took out at 8.20 a.m. out of runway 30. Air traffic control had kept in constant contact with Burlingame and Charles Bois. The final transmission to Flight 77 was noted at 8.50 a.m. Quote, a direct Falmouth American 77 thanks. End quote. After that, ATC would repeat the same command multiple times with no response. Three of the other hijacked flights have reports of bombs, knives, and people having been stabbed. Flight 77 would be the only hijacked incident which didn't have reports that included these terrible instances. At 9.12 a.m., flight attendant Renee May had used her cell phone to call her mother. May would state that the plane was being hijacked by six men and not five as the 9-11 Commission report stated in their final report. This would also contract, uh, contradict the FBI uh, report as well, stating that there were five. She also stated the staff and passengers had been moved to the rear of the airplane. The call lasted only two minutes. At 9.16 a.m., and 9.26 a.m., flight attendant Barbara Olson, uh, passenger flight, uh, excuse me, passenger Barbara Olson, called her husband Ted Olson and reported that the airplane had been hijacked and that the assailants 
at box cutters and knives. However, another call was made, this time from an unidentified female aboard American Airlines Flight 77. The call was placed to an AT&T operator, Mercy Lorenzo. Her supervisor, Teresa Gonzalez, who in turn notified the FBI of the call. The caller informed Gonzalez that the plane was hijacked by people who had knives and guns, who directed all the passengers to retreat in the back of the plane. The unnamed caller in the FBI 302 interview of Mercy Gonzalez was from Barbara Olson herself. At 8.56 a.m., the flight's transponder had been shut off. The autopilot had been turned on as well. Meanwhile, ATC operators were trying to locate Flight 77. While also dealing with a multiple hijacking scenario, with American Airlines Flight 11 already crashing into the North Tower at this point. Craig Marquis, Craig Parafit, and Joe Bertapelli, along with Mike Malachi, all four managers at the American Airlines had trouble contacting anyone at the FAA Command Center in Herndon. All four men would later testify before the 9-11 Commission that they lost precious minutes in building the communications bridge between the Special Operations Command and the Command Center. At 9.29 a.m., while at an altitude of 7,000 feet and approximately 30 miles from Ronald Reagan Airport, Flight 77's autopilot and autothrottle were disengaged. Immediately, operators conducted a nearby C-130 Hercules Lockheed plane. They contacted the operator Lieutenant Colonel Stephen O'Brien, in which was noticed by FAA in nearby Washington, D.C. on their radar. They asked O'Brien if they could locate a Boeing 757-200 Airbus, which was located nearby. O'Brien, through the low clouds, did indeed notice the plane and relayed the information back to FAA. They asked O'Brien to keep in visual contact of flight, in which at 9.37 a.m., O'Brien notified FAA operators he saw the plane in the vicinity of the Pentagon and a subsequent fireball immediately impacted and was visible after it crashed. The flight's impact and immediate aftermath were described in fuller detail in Rick Newman and Patrick Creed's excellent book, Firefight, Inside the Battle to Save the Pentagon on 9-11. Quote, the instant its nose struck the outer wall of the Pentagon, Flight 77 ceased to be an airplane. The nose of the plane hit the facade just below the top of the first story, about 14 feet above ground, going 530 miles per hour. A deafening boom shook the morning as a violent concussion tore through the air, jarring bystanders. The collision produced a force on the passengers for greater, far greater, than that of any high-speed car crash. People became projectiles, bone separated from flesh. Body parts flew as it fired from a cannon. When it hit the building, the fuselage crumpled immediately. Its soft aluminum disintegrated as it encountered layers of limestone, brick, concrete. A blast resisted geotextile lining 
the steel reinforced concrete columns that held up the building and everything else in its path. In an instant, the impact reduced Flight 77 to a million superheated fragments. Two-thirds of the right wing had been severed by the impact, with the construction equipment and what was left of it carved a gash in the building's second-story floor slab before the concrete sheared off the fuselage. At least one-third of the left wing had snapped off when the left engine hit the steam vault. The rest of it slid into the Pentagon beneath the second-story floor slab, penetrating no farther than a few feet. The airplane's tail, 45 feet tall, was still attached to the plane as it plowed into the Pentagon. But like the stubs of the wings, its soft aluminum was abruptly shredded when it collided with concrete. The horizontal stabilizers, the smaller wings at the back of the plane, didn't make much of an impact either. They may have penetrated farther than the front wings since they were being dragged into a hole, but they too broke apart quickly. The aircraft was carrying 5,300 gallons of fuel and three fuel tanks, one of the fuselage and one in each wing. The wing tanks were spewing fuel before the plane had even struck the building. At the moment of impact, about 720 gallons of fuel ignited outside the building, sending a fireball twice the height of the Pentagon, up through the roof and out in every direction. Fire instantly charred grass and trees lining the outer wall. Burning wreckage flew across the lawn. Chunks of metal rained down. A mushroom cloud followed the blast into the high sky. As the belly of the plane penetrated the first floor, another 4,450 gallons of fuel exploded in a blast far more powerful than the initial fireball. The massive concussion obliterated what was left of the airplane. Shockwaves hurtled down hallways. Part of the second-story concrete flab buckled like a bent flap on a cardboard box. Fuel spewed into every space that physics would allow. Much of it lit off instantaneously as fire raced through office space, air vents, and stairwells at nearly the speed of sound. End quote. The damage to the Pentagon was extensive. Just before its impact, five street light poles had broken away at its base, which, would, which it was designed to do in case of car impacts. It also struck a portable generator, in which created a smoke trail seconds before its impact into the Pentagon. There were 87 personal eyewitness accounts who were in the close proximity of the plane's impact into the Pentagon. Multiple agencies responded to the crash site. They included Arlington Fire Department, Fort Myer Fire Department, Reagan National Airport Fire Department, District of Columbia Fire Department, Fairfax and Montgomery Urban Search and Rescue, Fort Belvoir Transportation Division, Virginia Medical Technician Team, Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA. Hundreds upon hundreds of investigators searched the area for evidence, becoming the largest investigation in Washington, D.C. history, in which they would find thousands of the plane's debris and also many bodies and dismembered body parts. Kevin Rimrot, a Navy photographer surveying the Navy Command Center after the attacks, remarked that, quote, 
there were so many bodies, I'd almost step on them. So to have to really take care to look backwards as I'm not backing up on the dog, looking with a flashlight, making sure I'm not stepping on somebody, end quote. Thousands of pieces also carried upward and forward, even over the roof of the Pentagon. In the Pentagon's inner courtyard, very small pieces of aluminum drifted down like confetti. Other pieces landed on the roof. These bits of the plane's debris were also noted by members of Fort Myer and Arlington Fire Department, in which Arlington Battalion Chief Jason Schwartz, who was also the on-site commander, Carlton Burkhammer, Fairfax County Fire Rescue Station Number 14, saw parts of the plane, as well as many of the dead on the first floor. He pointed out that he saw, in particular, lime green pieces from the interior of the plane. Quote, you could tell where the plane had gone because of the destruction of the steel and concrete beams. End quote. Burkhammer would also find the black boxes belonging to Flight 77. According to an MBC, MSNBC article, quote, Early in Friday morning, shortly before 4 a.m., Burkhammer and another firefighter, Brian Morovitz, were combing through debris near the impact site. Peering at the wreckage with their helmet lights, the two spotted an intact seat from the plane's cockpit with a chunk of the floor still attached. Then they saw two odd-shaped dark boxes, about 1.5 by 2 feet long. They'd been told the plane's black boxes would in fact be bright orange, but these were charred black. The boxes had handles on one end, and one was torn open. They cordoned off in the area and called for an FBI agent who in turn called for someone from the National Transportation Safety Board who, who confirmed the find, the black boxes, were from American Airlines Flight 77. End quote. During the afternoon of September 11th, Eric Gill was out shopping with his family when he heard that an American Airlines plane had impacted the Pentagon. Gill rushedly returns to work and two days later, the FBI come to interview Gill at the hearing of the September 10th incident. Gill tells the FBI his story, but the FBI fails to show him a video it had found of the hijackers passing through an airport security checkpoint on September 11th, even though it is shown to all of Gill's colleagues, except the partner he was on duty with, Nicholas De Silva. The agents show him poor quality photographs, pictures of the hijackers, and Gill identifies two of them as the people he saw on September 10th in the evening, Nawaf al-Hazmi and Mawan al-Shehi, with al-Hazmi hurling the insults at Gill. The FBI agents almost immediately lose interest in Gill, for al-Shehi was not involved in the Flight 77 hijacking, but was suspected as being involved in the United Airlines Flight 175 hijacking, with Al-Shehi acting as its pilot, in which crashed into the south tower of the WTC. Over a year and a half later, Gill would have a telephone interview with the 9-11 Commission staffers about his incident, in which absolutely nothing would become of it. Not then or since. Gill remains adamant in him, personally seeing Al-Hazmi and Al-Shehi, however, Meanwhile, FBI investigators 
who had begun the largest investigation in their agency history, Pentbom, would have two agents visit the Saudi official who rented a room at the Marriott Residence Inn in Herndon, Salah ibn Abdul Rahman Hussein, the same hotel in which he stood where Hani Hanjour, Khalid al-Midar, and Nawaf al-Hazmi all stayed in on September 10th. As a woman agent questioned him, Hussein feigned a seizure and was rushed to a hospital in which they found absolutely nothing wrong with him and he was subsequently released. The agent recommends that Hussein, quote, should not be allowed to leave until a follow-up interview could occur, end quote. The next day, the agents returned to question him, but Hussein was rather unhelpful toward their inquiries, even stammering a bit about meeting with Al-Midar. When the agents leave, Hussein called the Saudi embassy in Washington, D.C. They would in turn call the FBI. According to authors Susan and Joe Trento in their book, Unsafe at Any Altitude, high-level Saudi contacts inside the U.S. Embassy called the U.S.-Saudi ambassador, Prince Bandar bin Sultan al Saud, in which notify FBI superiors in Washington, D.C. to not have the agents interview or confront Hussein again. On September 19, 2001, Hussein was allowed to leave the United States, along with many other highly important Saudi nationals on private charters back to Riyadh Airport in Saudi Arabia. One day after the attacks, FBI investigators were notified of a suspicious vehicle in the Dulles International Airport garage. The car, a 1988 Toyota Corolla, was registered to a Nawafa Hazmi with a residence showing an address located in Lemon Grove, California. It was the same address in which they lived with another Saudi, who was also an FBI informant. Abdesutta Sheikh, who reported to San Diego FBI agent Stephen Butler, whom Sheikh informed about renting to two Saudis in the year prior to these checks, who just moved into the U.S., but never gave Butler their full name. The car was searched thoroughly, and many incriminating items were found, including four color diagrams of an instrument panel for a B-757 aircraft, one yellow and black utility knife, one Pan Am International Flight Academy Jet Tech International Phoenix, Arizona identification card in the name of Hani Hanjour, a cashier's check to the flight academy in the amount of $5,745 from Hanjour, a travel itinerary for seats 13A and 13B for Khalid Al-Midar and Majid Makid on American Airlines Flight 77, a piece of paper with the name Osama 5895316, a packing slip of package for a package sent by Raouf Al-Dol whose address was 1565 Washington Boulevard, to the United Arab Emirates. In 2004, the FBI Office of the Inspector General found no fault on the part of Robert Fuller, the inexperienced agent whom the counterterrorism was tasked to find information regarding Khalid al-Madar and Nawaf al-Hazmi. 
which was a high-profile case. The Office of the Inspector General report quoted, quote, as discussed above on August 22, 2001, the FBI learned that Midar and Hazmi had entered the United States in January of 2000, that Midar and, again, flown to New York on July 4, 2001, and that there was no record of either of them leaving the country. The FBI also learned that Khalad had been identified in the Kuala Lumpur photographs. Upon discovery of this information, the FBI opened an intelligence investigation in New York in an effort to locate Midar. Once again, however, the separation between intelligence and criminal information affected who could receive access to the information about al-Hazmi and al-Midar. This interpretation of the wall also hampered the ability of the FBI New York agents working on the coal investigation to participate in the search for al-Hazmi and al-Midar. In addition, we found that the FBI's efforts to locate al-Midar and al-Hazmi was not extensive. We do not fault the case agent assigned to locate them. He was new and not instructed to give the case any priority. Rather, we found that the FBI New York office did not pursue this as an urgent matter or assign many resources to it, end quote. The repeated excuses would not end here in regards to the FBI's handling of the September 11th hijackings, as the CIA would also undergo similar internal investigations. However, not a single member of either agency was ever found to be held accountable for their acts of malfeasance, negligence, or even willful ignorance on the matter of monitoring the suspects involved in the September 11th attacks.